Hello. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's a Thursday night in January. It's the 12th day of January, and we're going live a little bit early because we have a guest that's coming on at 7.30 and a few things I want to get around to before he arrives. Who is that guest? You all know him. He's been on this show many times now as we have forged what I hope is a friendship, a mutual friendship uh, over the last couple of years. Timothy Alberino. he's a researcher, he's an explorer, and uh, author, and I can't wait to have him on to talk about the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. So this is going to be a, a deep dive into the past. I'm sure it'll ruffle quite a few feathers. Everybody has their own theories of the universe. Theories of how we got here and what came before us, and how many great resets there may have been prior to the emergence of, you know, our timeline. So that's what Timothy Alberino is going to be coming on to do at the bottom of the hour, and he'll probably stick around with us for about 45 to 60 minutes, and then that'll leave us just enough time at the end to start taking some calls and to see what people are thinking and um, and then to leave off. Leave off for what is the, the last show of the week. I'm going to make a decision on what our Saturday night show is going to be this month because obviously... We're almost halfway through January, which is obscene, right? It's the 15th over the weekend. Sunday's the 15th. It's my father's birthday. Halfway through. Nuts. Nuts. You take a blink. Blink. It's already Christmas again. You know that, right? It's all over. We already did Memorial Day and in, in, uh, in 4th of July. It's all over. And we're right. Actually, it's actually to the the twelfth of January, twenty twenty five, right now. Welcome to the show. So, that's what we're going to be doing. I wanted to do a little bit of an update on uh, Joe Biden's garage. So that's why I did this a little bit earlier, and that's what we have going on for Thursday night. Um, I want to thank my sponsors, since we're going to be talking about the impact of comets and flooding, lost civilizations, and all of that. Please be prepared for anything. Be prepared for anything. You know what the ancients did not have when the comets hit us and started wiping out the earth and the megafauna and all that stuff? They didn't have Blue Monster Prep survival food in their basement. This would have been a completely different ball game if they had the cedar fire starters and, the, and uh, all of the, the water filtration systems and secondary forms of communication. Okay. Go to BlueMonsterPrep.com. Pat and Gina, they are of the audience. They are Franklies. That's why this felt so right to be to to partner up with them a few years ago, even though I always wanted to have a preparedness website and supply company on with us. So the fact that they are of us is just so great. And they have they always prioritize this audience. And I hope that you all go and uh, and start prioritizing yourself. A little bit in 2023 start somewhere start small and just be consistent with it that is bluemonsterprep.com promo code frankly get in touch with pat and gina if you need any kind of guidance they are absolutely fantastic you'll feel right at home and away we go so tomorrow leo zagami is on to discuss hollywood uh, esoteric hollywood occult hollywood and the Vatican. I have a lot of questions about the Vatican, and we will see, as it is right now, Pope's dying, other ones being plotted against, 
Just a lot of cool things, weird, creepy things, but of major, major historical importance. And I want to see what he thinks is going on. So that'll be a good night tomorrow. I don't know if Matt will be in tomorrow. I just got to let him know. He, he, I think he'd find Leo really interesting. So I'll remind him. All right. Last night's book club was fantastic. Really great. The viewership was awesome. Glad to see how many people took part in it. Uh, well over 100 people were just hanging out with us and talking and discussing the, the, the source material of C.S. Lewis's The Great Debate, The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce. I will announce the, the next chapter, the chapters tomorrow when I put live our new thread. So we're getting through. It should only be about three three more weeks max. So thank you, everybody, who is part of that. All right, into the grab bag we go. What's the first story up? From the Daily Caller, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says gas stoves reduce cognitive performance. You know, last night, last night my gas stove sexually assaulted me. It was it was disturbing. I I don't feel safe in my own kitchen now. I can only imagine what would have happened to me if I were black. That would have been worse, I would have to imagine, because as we know, gas stoves hate black people more than anybody else. But this just adds another reason why we need to get rid of these things quick, because it is reducing cognitive performance, and people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez cannot spare any brain cells. She's got none to spare. She already doesn't have enough to go around. So please do something. Democrat New... I don't even give a shit. Why am I going to read this? Who cares? Just another another step in the plan. Step along the way with the nonsense. But um, on to the next thing. Oh, well, I had this other guy. I don't know who, who he is. Keaton Joshi. He talks a lot. He's obviously obsessed with, with gas stoves. But I had to take this very short two-tweet thread from him so you can just see a little something I thought is takes a lot of um, takes a lot of self-unawareness to write this out. Keaton Joshi said the following, the gas industry in the U.S. is absolutely going to ramp up a massive, well-funded disinformation campaign modeled on both the smoking and climate denial campaigns of the past to introduce doubt about the obvious health impacts of burning methane in your home to cook food. Isn't it incredible? He's talking about a massive, well-funded, ramped-up campaign to try to keep things the way they are and give people the option between gas and electric. And 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 what is he doing in the in the meantime? He's part of a ridiculous, out of nowhere, well-funded Massive ramp-up campaign to suddenly say we need to get rid of gas stoves. Everybody, all, all states all over the place, at least a couple of them, making sure that no more gas vehicles after a certain year. It's getting really bad out there, folks. And ain't nobody going to be helped from it. Nobody's going to be helped from it. If this does help the environment, you won't be alive enough. You won't be alive uh, to, to see the day that it does. But. Here you go. Here's what he says that you should be doing. You should expect literally everything from the gas stove lobby. You ready? You ready what we should expect? 
paid off scientists, hundreds of op-eds, paid social media campaigns, complicit or just convenient fool media outlets doing false balance, threats, intimidation, and bullying directed at scientists or researchers who counter the narrative. Where have I heard that entire game plan? Where have I seen and experienced that entire game plan rolled out recently? I know it was somewhere. It feels very familiar to me. Hmm. I wonder what his opinions on COVID shots are and lockdowns and masks. Oh, I wonder what this idiot's opinions on that is. That'll be interesting. So watch out. They're coming for your gas stoves. Coming for it all. They want it all. Now, this over here is a little bit more on the Biden garage end of things. Here is, uh, what is his name? Peter Ducey. If you didn't hear, the, the one of the latest batches, and I'm sure that by the time this is all over, and I don't know where it's going to end, but by the time this is all over, there is going to be documents found in far more places, far more places than just Joe Biden's garage, and it's literally his garage. Here is this uh, Ducey from, I think, Fox News asking about what he just blatantly asked Joe Biden. What were you thinking about putting classified materials next to your Corvette in a garage somewhere? And here is the response that he gets. And it seems like a lot of it is off of a script, as Greg Price puts out there. And you'll see him trying to read responses that are just not playing. Here it is. Classified material. Next to your Corvette, what were you thinking? Let me, uh, the, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. So the but street anyway. Was in a garage. Yes, as well as my Corvette. So, he, so that everybody relax, whatever these classified materials that he was taking illegally, unless Barack Obama uh, signed off on it. That'll be interesting to hear. That'll be very interesting to hear. Don't worry, they were all kept in his garage next to his Corvette. They were both locked away. Well, maybe the front door, the garage was locked. Who, who knows here? But just remember what we went through in August with Mar-a-Lago and the raids of that compound down there of a president who actually had the power to declassify these things that he had with him as he left. This guy would have needed somebody else to declassify these uh, documents, whatever the hell they are, for him. For him. But you know, if you're if you're gonna rob him, would you look for classi- classified material in a garage behind the wiffle ball bats? You got to give him credit for that. It's the last place you would look, right? Um, but uh, as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. Obviously, you don't. That's like me saying, people know that I take remaining a bachelor and childless very seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. As part of that process, my lawyers reviewed other places where documents in my, uh, of, from my time as vice president were stored, and they finished the review last night. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas and file cabinets in my home and my, in my, my, my personal library. 
This was done in the case of the Biden Penn, this was done in the case of the Biden Penn Center. The Department of Justice was immediately, as was done, the Department of Justice was immediately notified. Okay, okay, I'm having a little bit of a hard time there, obviously. I don't know when, it, when it's ever easy for this, this guy, but still, here we have from ABC News. More classified documents found in garage at Biden's Wilmington home, White House says. The White House confirmed Thursday that more classified documents from President Joe Biden's time as vice president, which that's the the key designation here, were found in the garage of his home in Wilmington, Delaware. It came just hours before Attorney General Merrick Garland named a special counsel in the Biden documents matter. Now, we'll see how far that investigation goes. We'll see if it just becomes a long, drawn-out process to see if they could uh, bottle it all up because it's an ongoing investigation, can't answer anything too explicit about it, and hopefully they can waste enough time until 2024 rolls around and then steal back the House of Representatives and uh, and therefore will be safe from any kind of investigatory powers and, and snooping and subpoena powers that Republicans have, at least for the next year and a half or two years. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I can't imagine Attorney General Merrick Garland, who is such a quizzling of a weasel, wimp, pipsqueak fuck, is going to go and, uh, and, and do anything that he knows is going to endanger Joe Biden in a much more significant way than they ever, they were dreaming of doing for Donald Trump. Dreaming. This is exactly what they wanted to get Donald Trump nabbed for. Something that was absolutely indefensible. Unless, of course, Barack Obama made it okay for him. But his name has not come up once yet. Not come up once. Asked about the discovery after remarks on the economy Thursday morning, Biden appeared to downplay the security risks. Quote, I'm going to get the chance to speak on this God willing soon, but I go, well, God willing, just do it. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, so it's not like it's just sitting in the street. Well, you just heard him say it yourself. So I, uh, there's, there's more, People like Raheem Kassam have put together different timelines to be considered. He said, he said, Rahim did, classified documents actually pertaining to national security from around the time Joe Biden is known to have been blackmailing Ukraine over the public prosecutor investigating his son's firm for corruption. Pretty fascinating. There's from CNN Politics. Intel materials related to Ukraine, Iran, and UK found in Biden's private office, sources tell CNN. And then again, a total of 10 documents with classification markings were found last year in Biden's private academic office and they were dated between 2013 and 2016. Uh, what's more is this headline Penn Biden Center funded with 54.6 million dollars from anonymous Chinese donors. According to public records, at least $54 million was donated to the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement in Washington by individuals with, individuals with ties to Chinese Communist Party, CCP. Between 2014 and 2019, the Penn Biden Center is where several classified documents were located in early November. 
locked in a closet in President Biden's former office, which is probably like, you know, Tony Soprano's office at Barone uh, Carding. It's like, it's just a, it's nothing. It's just a place where you go to pretend that you actually have a job there, but it's really just a front so that you can get a W-2 to justify at least a portion of all the money that you're making in gambling and prostitution. So I don't think it's an actual office that he went there to to grade papers in or anything like that. Uh, but that's the, the key thing there. Well, it's not. Uh, who knows? Because there's probably so many different types of scams and schemes going on all over the place. But 2014 to 2019, those years are pretty interesting because it was 2013 that Hillary Clinton's. Hillary Clinton's uh, bathroom server in Chappaqua closed down. And that was open, I think, between 2007 to 2013. And why do I bring that up? Because the more I look at this, the more my gut just tells me that, that we are at the opening of yet another big, deep rabbit hole that is just a international back channel. An international back channel of uh, intelligence transactions and, uh, and and all that other stuff. Espionage, pretty much. Pretty much espionage. That's what I'm thinking at this point. One reported donor was a real estate developer in Shanghai. Remember, one of Joe Biden's son's business partners was a spy chief in China as well. So these documents are there. I, I, I want to bring something else up. I want to bring something else up. I went back into an old blog show notes that I put together for a show that we did in 2018. It's called Chinese Checkers Show Notes, especially this part right here. I want to tell you a little bit more about, remind you a little bit more about the the potential cost, how we're being, this stuff costs us in ways that we don't even really, we can't even imagine nor detect at times. Early reports, this is my compiled writings from 2018. This is on quitefrankly.tv in the blog section. Early reports indicated that Feinstein, because we're talking about the, the Chinese spy that was working with Feinstein for 20 years, that was all uncovered around, two. I don't know, what was it? I forget how long ago it was now because it's 2023. Anyway, when we started learning just how long the spy, or like, oh, it was her driver. No, it was her office manager. We start, these little things started popping up. Well, I built on that. Early reports indicated that Feinstein's spy was only a driver for the senator, but new reports have revealed Russell Lowe, named as the spy in question, was actually employed as her office manager. It has been reported that Senator Feinstein first learned that Lowe was a Chinese operative in 2013. I said keep 2013 in mind. Here's a quote. The FBI told me five years ago it had concerns that China was seeking to recruit an administrative member of my California staff, despite no access to sensitive information. I took those concerns seriously, learned the facts, and made sure the employee left my office immediately, the senator tweeted. Well, isn't that special? Now read this brush up on Hillary Clinton's craziness with her home server. Notice the dates. This home base was in operation at different levels from 2008, while still in the Senate, until 2013. That was from the Daily Caller. It's all linked there. True Pundit reports, the embattled Lisa Page, 
tossed James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, and Bill Priestap, among others, under the congressional bus, alleging the upper echelon of the FBI concealed that intelligence uh, concealed intelligence confirming Chinese state-backed assets had illegally acquired former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's 30,000-plus missing emails, federal sources said. The Russians didn't do it. The Chinese did, according to well-placed FBI sources. You remember learning that around 2018? They said, well, this is, you know, the Russians, the Russians. But all, all along, we're learning that, hey, the open back channel in Chappaqua was being accessed by foreign, asset, uh, foreign assets and, and powers, and we knew about it. But that stays on the hush-hush. They have to make up shit about Russians working with Donald Trump to go go full bore against him. Meanwhile, they have his, they're all working with the people we're supposed to fear. And worse than that, and they're just fine. They're fine. That's cozy. And Wendy Sherman, a State Department of, official under Clinton, confirmed Clinton used the unsecured BlackBerry to swap classified information as late as 2011, two years after finding out it was vulnerable, which means the intelligence sloppiness began the moment she walked through the doors of the State Department in 2009. It also means she was a target during her first official trips to China. Now consider this. This could add a new context to a story we've covered last year. And it was from the New York Times that we had covered this story. Let's see. This was a, of course, behind a paywall now. Um, We probably covered this in 2016 or something like that, quite frankly. But a new new context to a story we covered last year, New York Times is and the, and the headline is killing cia informants china crippled u.s operations you can put two and two together here for yourself there was a lot of death and destruction going on while access to these channels of intelligence were left open namely in chappaqua intelligence classifications from confidential to special access programs also remember the fbi concluded in 2016 that Clinton had and did send and receive classified emails also concluded that the emails were hacked and viewed by foreign agents. So between Hillary Clinton's gross negligence at the very least and Dianne Feinstein having a spy in her office for 20 years, it's quite amusing that they would have the balls to concoct the story about Russian interference in anything. Interference that was not responsible for changing one damn vote with the, with the, um, the election in 2016, which is being, I mean which is being confirmed over and over again now with the Twitter files, over and over again, that there wasn't even a uh, a Russian bot swarm on Twitter influencing anything. In fact, we were seeing today with the whole uh, release the memo trending topic that we were, we, were, uh, we were all a part of in 2017 or 18, whenever it was, that uh, certain members of Congress got in touch with Twitter frantically and said, hey, there's a lot of bots and a lot of shills out there, all Russian, you got to put, you got to, you got to, batten this down too many people are asking about this memo and obviously there's there's nothing in that wink wink nod so it's um it's more the same so if you think that this is going on this was going on back then and we've obviously floated away from that and nothing has happened then yeah i would not be surprised if joe biden had his own little thing set up with a few choice partners through this pen thing and a couple of other places and who knows why some things were in his garage and it's just all so incredible isn't it
And you say, what compels behavior like that? Well, money. Money definitely over time. And then, uh, and then as more time passes by, it's just blackmail because you've gotten so deep into bed with these people that they probably know way too much about you and then you can't stop doing business. I mean, we have been sold piece by piece. Sold piece by piece away. We've been sold off by the likes of the Clintons and the McConnells, by the Bidens and the McCains, the Pelosi's and the Romneys for many moons now. For many, many moons. They've gotten a lot of people killed. They don't care about killing more. And if they're willing to do all of that, all of that, tell me again, where does this sudden pang of guilty conscience come from to attempt to steal or rig elections in any way, shape, or form? And then to be able to deny it and make you feel like you're the fool. Come on. Come on. They did They did everything but rig the election. They did all of this but that. That's a, that's a bridge too far. Come on, man. So, all right, let's get this thing started. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There is one more thing. There is one more thing. The uh, Joy Behar of The View. She is pissed off that Joe Biden... Joe Biden got away from uh, Joe Biden is now in trouble and they were so close to getting Donald Trump literally what she's saying over here uh, take a listen to this today you know what I think I've never Trump. seen a, a luckier person than Donald Trump just as we're this close well, to getting him but you somehow know these but it, documents you know what, appear but here's a you can't keep getting away with it she's literally she, she's the literal meme She's the meme. We were so close to getting him. And then somehow these documents appear. We were so close to getting Trump. And then our guys were exposed for doing something even worse again. There's just no filter. But then again, this is what you have with, uh, you know, programming for housewives. There's just no filter and it's just chaotic thought and they don't even hear what they're saying. It's just yappy, yappy bullshit. An entire panel of yappy bullshit every day for like 40 years now. I don't know how anybody who's listened to this for more than five years straight is still alive. I don't know how. Thing. Biden is wrong to have done this. He, he was in office wrong. for well, 40 years. Well, let's, find, let's find out what this is first. Now, again, mm. one of the things That's that true. gets me crazy is before we know, it's already been spun a specific yeah. way. Okay. Now, I brought this up on, to- on taking it back today with Adel and Zach. I did not go out and get the clip, but it's already been spun, man. Let's admit me. <laughs> I got Whoopi's smoker's cough just by impersonating her. Anyway, it was Joy Behar, this, this laughing cow in the center of this panel, who just just soiled herself, wet her pants in front of whoever the hell was watching when they got when they they had the Brian Ross report that got all of the dates wrong about when Michael Flynn was talking to the Russian ambassadors it was during the transition but they came up with some kind of a date that was prior to the transition so they thought that they had they thought they had Donald Trump they, and she said they, I would love I had to go find it it was when Brian Ross crashed the um 
the stock market. It like dipped 400, 500 points because he got all the dates wrong and they had to rush it out to Joy Behar so she could just be giddy about the fact that they had a president-elect who could be a traitor. And now they want to exercise caution. Now they want to exercise caution because the Chiquita, the Chiquita shell that they have for a president might be in trouble. But is he really in trouble? Who knows? I just love seeing these fucking nitwits trip over themselves with their double standards. I love it. Especially this last part. I don't want to see that. I want to see someone explain to me, A, how it's possible that after all this time, nobody knew this. Because to me, if you're missing classified information, I don't mean to laugh, but in my house, if stuff is missing... I know it's missing. Off the bat, everything that they say, everything that these women say, reveal how little they actually know about government and these systems. Research to you? Does it feel like the Republicans are behind it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does it feel like? Yeah. What do you think? You think that Republicans might be behind it? You think that the Republicans snuck into Biden's garage and and put this uh, the classified documents that pertain to? What could possibly be his 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 son's dirty dealings in Ukraine behind the wiffle ball bats, or 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 should we be upset that maybe a Republican tattled on the uh, verifiable crime already? I mean, how many times does Biden have to have to admit to the crimes? That's what I want to know. He said yes, the classified information was in in the garage next to the Corvette. Yes, I said oh, you're not going to get the uh, the eighty the the billion dollars unless you fire the prosecutor. I mean, he say he says this shit out loud. Boy, the magicians, the magicians are having one hell of a time flexing flexing their muscle. One hell of a time. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for the opening. Now we're going to go into the ancient past. We're going to have a good time with that and um, and take our mind off of all of this this nonsense for a little while. I want to encourage you all, please hit the like button on YouTube and on Rumble if you're watching there. There's other places to watch, of course, but if you're there, please hit that like button. It's incredible because from last week to this week, I can see it now. There's a 50% drop off in views because there was about an average of 400 to 500 like drop off from from episodes last week to this one. Please remind each other, like the show if you want to help grow the show in 2023. If for no other reason than just so that the people who are already subscribed get some notifications about the things that the channel is doing. So um, thank you guys and gals for supporting the show. We will be right back. stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride!
welcome, welcome. Okay, well, it's 7.23. We got a few minutes until Timothy Alberino comes and hangs out with us. And we're going to be talking about the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. And you're going to know all about it. I'm going to have him start from the beginning. And we're going to take it step by step and just go on a fantastic voyage. But for tonight, for now, I just encourage you all to just sit back, relax, and enjoy yourself. And I'm going to start off with this little, this little tidbit of information that was printed on the Jerusalem Post. Not printed. What's printed anymore? Archaeologists believe they found the Temple of Poseidon in Greece. Archaeologists discovered remains of what they believe was the Temple of Poseidon near Asemekon, Greece, according to a report by Fies, or Fies, on Wednesday. The remains were unearthed and are being researched by Austrian Archaeological Institute together with researchers from the Johannes Gutenberg University, Mainz, uh, Kiel University, and the Euphorit the, uh, and Antiquities, of Ellis. Oh, there's just so great. I love these names. Location where the remains were found corresponds to the area referred to by ancient Greek historian Strabo, who described the shrine some 2,000 years ago. They say, why do researchers believe the temple? It is the temple. The area, which is near the coast of the Pelopon of Peloponnese, is known to have been hit with multiple tsunamis in prehistoric and historic times. While it would seem that people would avoid such an area, this could actually be further evidence for the remains being from the Temple of Poseidon because he was believed to be the god responsible for earthquakes and tsunamis. Oh, how, how ironic that the tsunamis would take him down. The remains were first found in 2021, but it wasn't until a few months ago that the archaeologists re uh, realized that they were probably what was left of the Temple of Poseidon. More research needs to be done on the structure and extensive archaeological and geoarchaeological and geophysical analysis is planned for the next few years in order to give us a better understanding of what the structure was and its history. In Greek mythology, Poseidon is the god of the sea, earthquakes, and horses. He is the brother of Zeus, god of the sky, and Hades, god of the underworld. And the three are considered the biggest gods of the 12 main Greek gods. He is traditionally depicted with a trident, which he is believed to have used to channel his powers. Now, that doesn't sound like a biblical cataclysm that brought down the temple of Poseidon. But a cataclysm nonetheless, and a historical site that is uh, now lost to, who knows, maybe it's not lost for much longer, but it had been for a while. So cataclysms, plagues, pillars of fire, Noah and his ark, none are more hotly debated in recent years as the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. Um... Now, you may have watched hours-long discussions with Graham Hancock and, Hancock and Randall Carlson on Joe Rogan. If you're like me, you've hung on every word that people like Jimmy Corsetti from Bright Insight has published on the subject, uh, which I enjoy even more because, because Jimmy dives into deeper territory that has to do with Atlantis and other legendary civilizations. But our buddy, Timothy Alberino, he does all of that, puts it all together, and he goes to great mystic lengths as well, which I love doing this with him. And, uh, and we're going to be doing this tonight. So that's the return. Uh, return 
of Timothy Alberino. Timothy, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. How you doing? Doing well. Happy New Year. It's great. To, it's great to have you on with us again. It's uh, it's been I don't know. It feels like it's been since October or something like that. It has been. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good to turn the page on a new year. You know, I want to just jump right into this, Timothy, because there's so much to do, and I want to just let you loose. The Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, like I said in the opening, very hotly debated among people. Uh, just reading about the Temple of Poseidon before I called you up, possibly being rediscovered after being destroyed by tsunamis, which I said is ironic. But, man, do I love talking about cataclysms of biblical proportions, and there's nothing more biblical than what you're about to talk to us about tonight. So since you did a lot of work on this yourself, a lot of published work and more work to be done with your, uh, your, your presentations and everything else. Can you start us off by explaining what the Younger Dryas is and then take us through the hypothesis of the comet impact? The Younger Dryas is a period of abrupt cooling that's apparent in the geological record uh, that happened some 12,000 years ago, sometime around the year 10,000 BC. The Younger Dryas impact hypothesis posits that that abrupt cooling was catalyzed by comet impacts, uh, or rather the Earth passing through a comet, a, an asteroid field, and fragments of an asteroid bombarding the Earth, basically like buckshot from a shotgun. Mm. And much of these impacts, according to the hypothesis, or at least one of these impacts, uh, happened over the Laurentide ice sheet or somewhere over the ice caps in North America, most likely the Laurentide ice sheet, which covered most of North America during that time. And uh, that impact or impacts would have caused all kinds of cataclysmic results uh, on Earth, and it would have certainly wiped out most of the human population and much of the animal life on earth i see i i and that that's the first thing that i just had clarified for me in the last couple of uh months and now now this i at first i thought that this was a location i didn't know that it was an era and then uh, and that the location as you just said almost like buckshot that just splayed across where is the area uh, that it was that is mostly been and and how do we know that all of these impacts were coming from the same source? Well, the research that's been done by the Comet Research Group, these are the primary scientists that have been looking into the impact hypothesis as it pertains to the Younger Dryas cooling event. They have several different possibilities in terms of the impact sites. Um, I, I think most of them uh, are are convinced that the impacts happened somewhere in the in the northern hemisphere on the ice sheets, at least again, some of them. You know, the earth could have been peppered with hundreds, thousands, or even millions of fragments, uh, comet fragments, asteroid fragments from that from passing through that asteroid uh, from the uh, asteroid field. So, um, Really, really, the smoking gun that they're looking for in terms of the of the impact location, uh, there's as I said, there's there's several different options, and I'm in I'm in communication with one of the scientists working in the group, and there's there's a location 
um, not far from where I live in Montana that that uh, it's not in Montana, but it's it's up up in near this area where uh, there's some pretty compelling evidence that that was one of the primary impactors. But then there's there's other locations around America. Um, there's a, a massive crater that was discovered recently using technology in Greenland. And there's been other crater sites as well. And um, so uh, I think the evidence is there, but they haven't yet put their finger on a single location definitively, um, at least to my knowledge. But there are other, there are lots of other indications that the Comet Research Group, uh, led by Ellen West, uh, geologist Ellen West, is is in fact um, onto something here and that the theory, the impact hypothesis theory is on very solid ground. Um, you have, I won't get into all of the, uh, all of the scientific uh, proofs, but you have layers of soil around the earth. Um, it's, it's called the black mat. Um, certainly in the United States, there's this, there's this layer of soil that they call the black mat um, that's been studied all over the place, especially in Arizona, that it, it shows massive biomass burning. In other words, forest fires on an absolutely enormous level. Um, some of these guys believe that up to 25% of the world's uh, forests, vegetation, were on fire at the same time. Wow. And that's why you have this thick black mat apparent in the geological record. So there's there's a lot of evidences. There's a lot more than that. It gets a lot more technical than that. But but the point is that because of the uh, because of the profusion of 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 evidence that's coming forward now, a lot of the scientists who were resistant to the theory in the beginning are warming to it now. It's it's slowly becoming accepted in the scientific community it, it, out of the gates as soon as it as soon as it came onto the scene right out of the gates it was it was rejected out of hand and, and even there was a lot of hostility towards the uh, toward the the theory well, why, well why why is that inevitable why is that what 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 was the biggest hang up from the conventional uh, uh the conventional understanding of what was going on during that period of time on earth what did it contradict that um that the orthodoxy just could not accept, do you think? Well, it contradicts the very premise of modern geology, which was developed by Lyell and it in, in his origins of, of geology. And um, it's 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 a it's a philosophy of, of gradualism. And I'm trying to think of the of the uniformitarianism. That's the that's the actual Charles Lyell uniformitarianism, and and the theory of uniform uniformitarianism posits that 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 everything that happened in the past must have happened the same way things are currently happening. In other words, the the slow gradual changes that we see in geology today. That's all that we have to explain what happened in the past. It rejects what's called catastrophism 
And catastrophism is the antithesis of uniformitarianism. And catastrophism posits that the Earth has undergone dramatic change due to catastrophic events, cataclysmic events that have dramatically shaped the surface of the Earth. And since uh, Charles Lyell uh, wrote his book and, and, and published his, his theory, um, there's been this hostility towards catastrophism. Of course, the, the biblical flood would fit into the theory of catastrophism and indeed all of the ancient reckoning of a great cataclysm that rocked the earth in the distant past. That's all catastrophism. And for many, many years, many decades, geologists have been, have been opposed to catastrophism because it causes them to have to consider things that they don't like. They don't want to consider, for example, the flood of Noah, the biblical flood. They don't want to consider that maybe these legends about these ancient cata cataclysms are true. And that would have that would force us not only to rethink the way that we view geology and some of the geological features on the earth, but also it would it would force us to begin to think differently about prehistory. And so you're cro you're crossing over into into multiple fields of study that are uncomfortable for historians and geologists and other and other scientists um, who. And, and you know, scientists generally speaking don't like to. They don't like the apple cart being upset. They don't like to. They don't like to. To um, shake up the status quo. They're very comfortable in the way that they view the world, geological, historic, and otherwise. And so, when you have a a group of scientists in the the comet impact research group who come along and say, wait a minute, we have evidence here that just 12,000 years ago, 10,000 BC, thereabouts, in the neighborhood of 10,000 BC, the Earth was rocked by, by a global cataclysm that wrought unimaginable destruction. That's, that's very close in terms of uh, geological time that that's that's a very short period away from the present age and that's very difficult for geologists to consider they're fine with the idea of a asteroid hitting the earth 64 million years ago and destroying the dinosaurs because that's way back in the distant past that's that's out of sight out of mind that happened a long 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 time ago and you know before before human civilizations arose in the earth and so it's just a very uncomfortable theory that that is it doesn't fit neatly it doesn't fit nicely into their paradigm it shatters their paradigm actually especially as it per pertains to uh prehistory because along with not necessarily attaching what i'm about to say to the younger dry's impact hypothesis um and the comet research group but now i'm taking a different track uh, a lot of us believe that that what goes hand in hand with this idea of a of an earth-shattering cataclysm 12,000 years ago is the notion that there was a high civilization advanced ancient civilization inhabiting the earth before that cataclysm inhabiting the earth in the ice age that was eviscerated from the face of the earth during that cataclysm 
and uh, and that really makes people uncomfortable. So then let me let, let's just jump right into that because you started bringing up time frames. I was going to ask you about years, and you're you're saying about twelve thousand. And I and I've heard that twelve thousand, twelve thousand eight hundred kind of twelve thousand eight hundred years ago, yeah. more or less. I've I've yeah, that's the one I see keep coming up when anybody is discussing this. And I now uh, you so also being like a, a biblical scholar as well. Is that does that predate Noah? So would this would this does no. that predate Noah or is that that no? Would, not in my opinion. In my opinion, that is the flood of Noah. Now, so this you're talking. So this would be the. From my basic understanding, growing up, um, growing up around Bible stories and and having this in in religion class and all that, I we were always taught that this was a uh, yes an act of God, but it was a deluge, a, a long rain that was coming down from God, and now this is suggesting that perhaps it was a comet sent down. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the Bible never says never describes the catalyst for the flood but there had to be one and and and, I, and there's nothing about the younger dry's impact hypothesis that would contradict any any kind of a biblical worldview as it pertains to the flood of noah hmm. it fits very comfortably within that narrative um now most christians would not place the flood of noah around 10,000 bc but i would and the Bible doesn't give a date for the flood. Now, some people think that it, it indicates a date based on the genealogies that are found in Genesis 5 of the pre-flood patriarchs. But if you, if you study how genealogies are dealt with in the Hebrew Bible, you realize that they employ what's called telescoping. And telescoping is relating a genealogical timeline and only indicating the most important figures in that timeline, not every single person, just the most important figures. And the reason why telescoping happens uh, within the context of the Hebrew Bible is because it, it they because the writers like to employ numerology. They like to settle on a a a specific number. And so, in order to reach that number, they would telescope the either uh, they would telescope the the genealogies of these of the patriarchs or of the personages that they're referring to does that make sense mm -hmm. so they would shorten the the time they would shorten the list of patriarchs in order to fit into a certain numerology that also communicated something so um so another way to explain this is simply that they only mentioned certain patriarchs in Genesis 5 the ones that were most notable not necessarily an unbroken line from father to son and if you if you allow for telescoping then then we have no idea how far in the past the pre, the pre-flood how far into the antediluvian world the genealogy of the of the patriarchs listed in Genesis 5 extends and I believe that the flood of Noah occurred sometime around 10,000 BC, not only because of the Younger Dryas impact event. I actually came to this uh, opinion, um, this hypothesis of mine, the flood occurring in 10,000 BC, somewhere in that neighborhood, after studying the megaliths, because there are a handful of megaliths around the world that seem to be oriented in such a way that they timestamp 10,000 BC both in Egypt and in Peru and in other places. So 
I was already thinking 10,000 BC uh, before I, I really began to study the, the, the comet impact. And when I studied the comet impact, it was just it just fell right into place. It was like a, a piece of the puzzle that I was missing, and that would be the, the cataclysm itself. What caused the cataclysm? And by the way, you know, if you think about um, if you think about comets, multiple comets, even one comet, let's say the size of Manhattan, striking the Earth, it is unbelievably devastating unbelievably devastating each impactor would be the equivalent of 10 times the bombs that we that we dropped a hundred times actually the bombs that we dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima each impactor and and if you consider that these impacts were occurring at least some of them on the ice caps you're talking about an an, an instant liquefaction or vape or vaporization of that ice hmm. and so you have millions of cubic miles of fresh water rushing into the oceans and and massive clouds of vapor going up into the atmosphere um and that would precipitate a host of really difficult scenarios on planet earth but then you also have to um consider the shock waves of the impacts i mean anything in the vicinity of these impacts is going to be exposed to temperatures that are hotter than the surface of the sun instantly vaporized um you would have a, a the shock wave would extend for many 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 miles um you would have a massive earthquake in fact i think that you would have earthquakes all over the earth huge earthquakes and you would have extreme volcanism being ignited from these earthquakes, from the impact event. And all of this together would lead to extensive biomass burning, like we said, up maybe up to 25% of all vegetation on Earth going up in flames at the same time. And and the vapor that's going up in the atmosphere, plus the the smoke and, and just and also all of the debris that's thrown up into the air uh, during the impact events, you're going to get what's called an impact winter, which is very much like a nuclear winter, which blocks out the sun for a period of time and causes uh, temperatures to plummet. And that's exactly what happened during the Younger Dryas. Temperatures abruptly plummeted on planet Earth, re a return to ice age conditions, because we were, we were in a time of warming, right, coming out of the ice age right before this happened. And then, boom, suddenly the Earth is thrust back into the Younger Dryas some 12,000 years ago and so you can imagine the absolute catastrophe that's unfolding on the earth not not to mention by the way tidal waves yeah from from all of that ice falling into the water all of massive massive chunks of ice falling into the oceans but also the shock wave also the earthquakes you're talking about global tsunamis so the earth is getting a continent it's getting a facelift no doubt about it from what, what you're what you're describing there major facelift and i so the first thing i'm thinking to myself now is you're talking about ancient civilization how uh the planet being inhabited by an advanced civilization what was that was that something that was going on at that time that 12,800 years ago 10,000 years ago around the time um you and i we've we've talked about ancient civilizations before we've gone back as far back to uh to to 
legends about what was going on in India a million years ago. There's a lot of that going on where there's a pretty much an atomic civilization in India. I've learned a lot about that over the years. I always thought that was interesting. But, um, but when it comes to what could have been impacted with this particular cataclysm, are we talking... Are we talking Nephilim again? Are we talking, is there any anything in the Bible that would tell us what kind of a civilization was on earth? Are we talking about Plato and Atlantis again? What exactly uh, is this civilization look like? Do you do you think in your, in your well, research? Well, because I believe that this was the catalyst for the flood of Noah, then what you're referring to is the pre-flood world, the antediluvian world, which is called the golden age, as we've talked about on your show. A couple of times uh, by the ancients or Zeptepi the first time by the um, by the Egyptians and what and what distinguishes Zeptepi the first time in the Golden Age from all other ages universally is that this was the time when the gods descended to the earth and dwelt among men and copulated with their daughters producing hybrid demigods uh, which which the Bible and the Book of Enoch and extra biblical texts referred to as Nephilim. So yes, we are in that time frame. Now, you know, Atlantis as it pertains to Atlantis and 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 Graham Han- Hancock has done great research on this and as as well as Randall Carlson and many many others and they pointed out that the story of Atlantis actually coincides the destruction of Atlantis coincides with this impact event. Uh, which I find fascinating. And of course, we're all familiar with the story of Atlantis, which is described in Plato's Critias dialogue in which in which Solon of Athens visits the priests of Nath in the city of Sais. And there he finds an old priest who begins to recount to him the story of Atlantis. And what's really intriguing about the story of Atlantis is that the priest the priest informs Solon that Atlantis was destroyed in an aqueous cataclysm 9,000 years before their present age. Well, we know that Solon visited Egypt in 600 BC. So that means that according to the reckoning of the Egyptians, the fall of Atlantis occurred sometime in the neighborhood of 9,600 BC nearly 12,000 years ago. So it's in the neighborhood of 10,000 BC. It's in the neighborhood of 12,000 years ago. Um, And Atlantis doesn't just fit the the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. It also fits the narrative of the pre-flood world from the biblical biblical and extra-biblical texts, especially the Book of Enoch. In fact, it fits it like a glove. In the book of Enoch, as I've discussed on your show, uh, it, it relates the, the story of the Watchers. In fact, the first part of the book of Enoch is called the Book of the Watchers, and it's all about this event that happened. The Watchers, who, who are these heavenly entities, um, committed an act of, of, of rebellion, insurrection against God, and descended to the earth in defiance of God. They descended to the earth, and they they began to take wives from among the daughters of men they copulated with these women who gave who conceived and gave birth to giants the offspring of the gods died um hybrid demigods 
uh, who happen to be gigantic in stature. Well, let me. Well, wait, can I can I ask you a little something on that right there, sure. just so I can get our our definitions down? You had said God before. You had said that gods would had uh, coming down and producing demigods, uh, and now watchers. Is that? Are you using that interchangeably there, or is this more reference? The gods who descended are the Watchers. The demigods that were produced via their union with human women are the Nephilim. And is this part of that same hierarchy of gods that people like Michael Heiser talk about a lot? Yes. Okay. Yes. With, yes. With the, uh, with the commander and in I, chief. And I do talk about this in my book, Birthright. I describe exactly who I think the Watchers were and how they fit into the hierarchical structure. Um, the cosmic hierarchical structure, but they're rebelling. The they're rebelling against the commander in chief. They're saying. rebelling against the king. Okay, and they know they're doing this. They know what they're about to do is a great sin, and that's why they they take an oath of of uh, mutual imprecations on Mount on the summit of Mount Hermon, binding themselves together that whatever come uh, of this deed that they're about to do, they're all going to pay the price equally together. They're in this together. It's like a blood bond between them. So they know what they're about to do is, is, um, is, is not going to please the King of heaven. There's going to be some kind of reprisal. So, um, now let's parallel this with the story of Atlantis. See, because the story of Atlantis fits this story like a glove. It really does. It's a template, uh, for the, antediluvian age for the golden age and i always refer to atlantis as an allegory of the golden age because it is so in the story of atlantis um it begins by describing how the gods of course we're talking about the greek gods in this context um were apportioning the earth among themselves so you get all the gods and they're dividing up the earth into kingdoms separate kingdoms and so what you have here is you have an empire of the gods in which each god is going to is going to be allotted a plot of earth a territory to set up their own kingdom but the gods are in league so it's an empire of the gods each god establishing his own kingdom that's how the story of atlantis begins now for his lot poseidon is given the territory of Atlantis, and it describes how Plato describes how, or actually, it's the in 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 the in the Critias, it's the it's the old priest of Nath that's describing this. How Poseidon begins to create the island of Atlantis, and of course, Poseidon being the god of the sea, so it makes sense that his realm was in the sea. He creates the island of Atlantis, and then he he does something very interesting. He decides to wed a human woman. He marries. Clato. He marries this woman that he's enamored of, Clato. And he copulates with her. She conceives and she gives birth to, to five sets of hybrid twins. So you have ten sons, and these are hybrids, and they're, and they're, they're, they're twin sons. Um, chief among them, firstborn, is Atlas. And other sources, interestingly enough, describe the sons other ancient sources describe the sons of Poseidon, the hybrid sons of Poseidon and Clato as gigantic in stature as giants. These are demigods, classic Greek demigods, Atlas and his other siblings. Now, the, the sons of Poseidon begin to rule over the kingdom of Atlantis, but Atlantis is, ex is, is, is 
is an expansionist state. It's an expansionist city-state. So it becomes a kingdom that expands into the neighboring territories in a very hostile man manner. It's interesting that so many people, when they think about Atlantis, they think about this... Utopia. This utopia, this peace-loving utopia. I don't know where they get that. Maybe mm. there's a hint of that, that that's how they began in the story of Atlantis, but that's certainly not how they ended because these are these are, this is a kingdom on the path of conquest and they begin to have hostility with their neighbors and to begin to to conquer their neighbors and take the captives as slaves so they're they're taking slaves many slaves from the conquered territories and they're pushing inward and remember plato puts atlantis somewhere out in the atlantic that's from which the atlantic ocean derives its name from the city of atlantis now lots of ideas of where Atlantis might be. We'll forego those for the time being and focus on the fact that Atlantis is pushing, at least it's pushing eastward and it's pushing into the Mediterranean. How do we know it's pushing into the Mediterranean? Because uh, the priest of Nath is describing that it's that they're conquering Northern Africa and they're, they're un, this is an unstoppable kingdom that's advancing. And, and, Nobody can contend with Atlantis until they hit this wall called Athens. And the Athenians, and this is why Priest of Nath is, is telling Solon this story, because he's, he's, he's telling Solon of the great deeds of his ancestors that he doesn't know about. And, and so the Athenians were able to resist the Atlanteans, and there was this massive war between the city-state of Athens and the city-state of, of Atlantis. So that's that's the setup. So you have, now let's step back and let's see this, let's take a panoramic view of what's being described here. What's being described is, as I said, it's it fits like a glove when you compare it to the story of that's told about the Watchers in Enoch, because you have the gods who are setting up this empire on earth, copulating with human women, giving birth to hybrid demigods who are giants in some cases, many cases actually, the demigods of the Greeks, giants, and and they're beginning to expand over the face of the earth. And then something happens. They go to war with each other. And this is a, this is um, this is from the, the, the narrative in Enoch. The giants are are caused as judgment to go to war with one another and to destroy each other. And as they're going to war with each other and destroying the, each other, something happens. Dur um, um, in the aftermath of this war, and probably during the end of the conflict for some of the kingdoms, something happens. And this something is described both in the Book of Enoch and in the Critias, Plato's Critias. Suddenly, a cataclysm befalls the earth. And this cataclysm is accompanied by great a great storm and earthquakes and volcanic volcanism and everything we already described and a tsunami and in the story of atlantis atlantis is destroyed in one day and night so it's destroyed overnight in this cataclysm absolutely utterly obliterated in the cataclysm but what most people don't catch here is so is athens everybody's wiped out not just atlantis this is a cataclysm that destroys everybody and that's what the intimation is in the story of atlantis because it talks about the dead in athens from the cataclysm so so you have this cataclysm interrupting the war 
between Athens. By the way, Athens was also founded by a god, Athena. Um, so it fits the it fits the narrative of of Enoch. And in the midst of this war, something happens, uh, and and I think that something is is a comet impact or fragments of a comet. Um, and 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 the Earth is is wrecked in this cataclysm, and that's it. That's the story of Atlantis. And again, if you if you take the story of Atlantis and you line it up with the story that's told in the Book of Enoch, which is much older, then then you you get almost a one to one comparison. So that's why part of the reason why I believe that uh, that um, yes, indeed, the flood of Noah happened some 12,000 years ago, sometime around 10,000 BC, that it was the cataclysm that's described by the priest of Nath in Solon, in, uh, in Plato's account, and that it is the younger Dryas impact event. That's a lot. That's a, that's a lot of stuff happening at one time, very busy earth. And, and, and you know, let me ask you about this here too. At the beginning, the top of, in other play, other people who would um, analyze those parts of the Earth, let's just go to North Africa, for example. <clears throat> there was a time where they say it was a very North Africa, very very lush before the before the the, the Sahara Desert. There, it was very lush. There were rivers, jungles, forests, whatever, and that the Sahara region was caused by wind erosion or a massive washout. Now, I saw uh, when I started getting into, you know, poking around with this whole topic, I, I mentioned Jimmy Corsetti from the Bright Insight uh, uh, channel uh, earlier on in the in the uh, the episode here. But it was him that brought my, to my attention, I'm sure hundreds of thousands of other people, the Rishat structure, which I, I'm, I'm yes. positive you know about. Yes. Called call yes. the Eye of the Sahara. Um, more conventional geologist types, uh, Timothy, they insist that the Rishat structure was the naturally occurring elliptical rock dome that eroded over time, but uh, it, its location matches eerily well with descriptions of Atlantis published by Plato. The surrounding area is essentially one massive salt deposit, making some people like Jimmy Corsetti believe that this had once been the bottom of the ocean or the ocean had flowed through there in a massive kind of a way. Uh, what do you what do you think about that with the, the Rishat structure as a potential uh, resting place for what was Atlantis? I think it's possible. You know, I think I would probably concur with... Uh... Uh, Randall Carlson in, in leaning towards it not being Atlantis, and for several reasons. Carlson makes a great case for why why he thinks it's not the location of Atlantis. But, you know, my initial problem would be that you have to keep in mind that the oceans have, have were, were the ocean, this is something I didn't say, is one of the most important things that happened during the, this cataclysm, uh, the Younger Dryas Impact event, is that the ro the oceans rose precipitously like some 400 feet or something the oceans rose precipitously obviously from from the all that ice uh all that fresh water flowing into the ocean from the ice cap so and other and other things happening possibly water coming up from 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 beneath the crust of the earth as well like the bible describes so the oceans rose tremendously and so what we see today uh in terms of the landmass uh, is not the way it looked 
in 10,000 at 10,000 BC. There was a lot more landmass, and you can actually look at maps that have been made by geologists um, who uh, who depict what the landmasses probably look like based on what we can see in terms of the geography of the oceans today, um, the ocean floors. And for example, just to give you an example, all of the land masses around Great Britain, including you know Ireland and 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 that whole area, were one solid landmass. So what you're seeing today in 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 England is the tips of that landmass, just the just the the high points, the the most uh, elevated points of that landmass is is all that's left today above the ocean. But at one time there was a lot more land there connected mm. to Europe. Uh, so there was no that you know the English Channel didn't exist. In fact, the English Channel was pretty shallow, and 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 it certainly did not exist at that time. So, um, and of course we know that where do civilizations live? Where do the largest civilizations live? They live along the coasts and along the banks of rivers. And so those are precisely the areas that would have been most devastated, completely flooded, completely. The entire Mediterranean area would have been underwater. Um, the area between the Mediterranean Sea and and um, and the and the the Fertile Crescent um, would have been completely submerged. Rather, the Fertile Crescent would have been completely submerged by the Mediterranean Sea, completely. And so, uh, you know, all around Australia and Indonesia, all of that, uh, all all, the, all of those islands were connected at one time. So that's a whole lot of the Earth's surface that we've lost. Having said that, if we can, if we consider the the eye eye of the desert, this what what's it called the the uh, the Rashad structure, the eye of the Rashad Sahara. structure. Um, today we see it above water, which would seem to contradict what we know about the world, about the Earth, and the land masses twelve thousand years ago. In fact, that area would have been even even more elevated from sea level at that time. So uh, it's difficult for me to imagine, unless that part of the earth through tectonic activity or something was elevated, was lifted up during the cataclysm and came up out of the sea, which is a possibility, by the way, um, it's hard for me to, to imagine it being submerged, uh, um, uh, being at sea level uh, during the uh the ice age and or at least uh, around 10,000 BC it would have been even more elevated from sea levels what i'm trying to say here so you know how do we how do we uh make sense of that and and i don't know maybe there's an answer for that but i i that's one of my contentions well you know uh, as i was looking at the while you were talking about the just earlier on in our our discussion tonight about the the kind of splayed out shotgun effect that that could have happened in all of the confirmed or at least um i i don't know uh per perspective or or i should say the uh, potential impact zones around the the world it seems to all be taking place above the equator uh, i saw there's a lot of red yes. red markers in north america in the united states which i was surprised by because i thought this was mostly a eastern hemisphere 
kind of thing, but it looks like we got the brunt of it. Um, but Northern it, Hemisphere. Well, well, well. Then here's my question: If that's the case, I can totally see how the Northern Hemisphere and all that got really peppered, and why people would say, "Well, you know, if if there was an Atlantis, if there was a global." Uh, advanced civilization that had inhabited the earth and where's the where's the debris like where where is any there would be none even even you think uh i think they would say even anything that made of metal nothing was that any no there would be none the only thing that you would find and i've been saying this for years before i came upon the the younger dry impact hypothesis the only thing that you should expect to find if in fact a massive a global cataclysm occurred in the distant past, the only thing you should find of civilization would be the megalithic foundations of their largest constructions. Hmm. That's it. You would only find those foundations, which were devised, by the way, to withstand cataclysm. They were made for that, to withstand it. So um, if, in fact, they were built in the world before the cataclysm, which I think they were. Now, there is also the possibility that they were built shortly after but uh, i think at least some of them were built before the cataclysm and that explains why they're in such a state of disarray and utter ruin like tiwanaku for example where the blocks massive blocks are just are just look like they were blown apart scattered all over the place and that's not something that's just going to be the result of time those blocks were thrown they were they were shattered um and it could have been a massive earthquake. It could have been a tidal wave. Although that's the Altiplano, you're talking about, you know, you're 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 twelve thousand feet above sea level over there, hmm. at thirteen even. So, um, I was talking to a geologist out there. I spent some time with a geologist out in Tiwanaku, in Peru, and Bolivia, and um, and he believes that he has this. He has evidence that he was showing me that the entire Altiplano, which the Altiplano is the high plain between Peru and Bolivia, it's where Lake Titicaca is, it's twelve to thirteen thousand feet above sea level, and he believes that the whole thing was thrust upward abruptly at some time in the distant past. That it was a cataclysmic event in a short period of time. It rose precipitously above sea level. Uh, far above sea level, and 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 um, I didn't uh, I didn't collect his research, and I haven't talked to him since. But he was vi- he was he was he was absolutely convinced that this is what had taken place, and maybe so. Um, but you know, certainly uh, there was a lot. By the way, there was a whole lot of precipitation too. So it wasn't just that the waters that the that the sea was rising um, because of the ice melting. There was there was a ton of precipitation falling on the earth at the same time. In fact, black rain, you would have had black rain because of all of the debris in the atmosphere and all the soot from from the volcanism and the biomass burning. You would have, you would have literally had torrents of black rain. Imagine how apocalyptic that event would have been if you were living, let's say in Athens or at, or Atlantis or somewhere else on the earth during that event. I mean, it would have been, it would have been terrifying, hmm. absolutely terrifying. Yeah, uh, it, it would be, especially if you you've already you've only seen so much. But then again, um, that that would be terrifying to any civilization, no matter how advanced they could have been in their time. Because the, you, as as you described in many different ways tonight, it's a earth changing. I mean, it's almost an earth resetting event, and that's what it I want. Exactly that. Well, that that's my my that's my bigger question because if you have a 
uh, a reset. Obviously, you can't take everybody off the earth because we don't grow like oranges. We That's we need right. to we need yeah. to we need to copulate. We need to reproduce. So I um, what about any civilizations that were untouched or, or not, not 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 untouched? I should say. But I understand there was no. Um, there's very few, few survivors of Atlantis, but I and from all of the the Plato writings and and things that you and I have talked about, my understanding is that many of the survivors of Atlantis became the Egyptians. Oh, they 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 moved to Egypt. They became they helped build that. Possibly, okay. Possibly, you know. Um, first of all, as everyone knows, my perspective is a biblical perspective, so. I do not necessarily subscribe, and this may shock people, but I do not necessarily subscribe, I used to, but I don't anymore, to a global flood scenario in which every single mountain is underwater. Every, the top of Everest, the top of every high mountain is underwater. I'm open to the idea. I'm completely open to it, but I'm not, I haven't settled on any position and I likely won't in the near future. I think it's just as possible, just as likely, that certain parts of the of the Earth certainly were completely underwater. As we said, flooding on a scale that is almost unimaginable. Um, and, it, and it is global flooding in the sense that no part of the Earth is untouched by the, by the flooding. So global flooding, um, and it would have seemed like a global deluge to anybody living on the coastal regions or on the or on the banks of rivers. It would have seemed like it. I mean, you're talking about if you're living in North America at the time, a hundred foot tidal wave sweeping across the land, just absolutely eviscerating, washing away everything in its path. That's the kind of of water of of aqueous cataclysm we're talking about. Um, so, so in terms of the survivors, well, certainly I believe that Noah was a historical figure. I believe that that story is a historical account and that Noah and his sons survived. Did anyone else survive? And right away, let me preface this by saying uh, a lot of the uh, Christian people listening to me might, right now may be throwing up red flags saying, wait a minute, the Bible is clear about this. But I challenge you to go back and take a look and to um, to look at this from the point of view of both both Michael Heiser and and Hugh Ross, and uh, and and you'll see very quickly that that uh, there are more than one a possibility. Just taking the biblical text, just taking the text of the Old Testament, you will see that that the idea that every mountain was under the water is not necessarily the prevailing narrative. That there are there are a couple of possibilities. Um, that are equally valid. So let me just insert that. So um, were there civilizations, or at least were there groups of people who survived the cataclysm? Um, Graham Hancock, for example, believes that there would have been some hunter-gatherer civilizations that survived in different parts of the earth because they would have had the skills to survive in those very savage, in the savage world that would have, that would have, um, that would have, uh, uh, been the aftermath of this cataclysm, um, and that those and that there were actually some survivors from this is Hancock's opinion that there were actually survivors from the advanced civilizations or advanced civilization who who after the cataclysm went around the earth, journeyed around the earth, reteaching the implements of civilization. Um, for example, in 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 North America and in, in South America and in these far-flung places of the Earth, where only the hunter-gatherers would have survived, 
that's that's an interesting hypothesis. Now, I'm not sure that I subscribe to it, but it's an interesting hypothesis. You know, there's another hypothesis that says that nobody survived except for uh, Noah and and the the people, the eight individuals who were on the ark. And uh, other people would say, no, not Noah, but uh, the the Noah figure from the Mesopotamian account, or the Noah figure from the uh, from the Indian account, or whatever. Um, so the the idea is that no, only a very small people survived versus um, only hunter gatherer types really survived, and maybe a few individuals from the higher civilization. So you know, there's there's there are a variety of possibilities, but we do know that what you said is exactly what happened. It was a re- it was the great reset. It was the original great reset on planet Earth, where whoever survived in whatever condition would have ha- would have faced a dreary dark cold apocalyptic world for at least a decade here is another question i had come up and i'm sure that some people in the, in the chat rooms are, are thinking about this too but where along this timeline do the 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 pyramids the the sphinx uh, come into it. I mean, especially Robert Schock's work. I'm I'm sure you know Robert Schock's yes. work. Well, he, he was he uh, you know to in the face of great controversy said that he believes that the Sphinx is much much older uh, than it ever was that er, anybody ever agreed upon it being. Based so, on water weathering, yeah. Yeah. So so was the Sphinx and the pyramids? Did they experience this deluge, or I don't know about the pyramids, but I think that the Sphinx, because of Shock's work, I, I and others, uh, Anthony West, for example, um, I do believe that the Sphinx is old, is goes back to around ten thousand BC, um, just like I believe that Sacsayhuaman and uh, the megaliths in Cusco go back to ten thousand BC, um, but the pyramids themselves. I don't know. I don't know if the pyramids are built on older structures. They they most certainly are, I think. But, but, um, you know, uh, what technology did 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 the ancient Egyptians have to build those pyramids? And 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 there is there are possibilities that the ancient Egyptians did have technology to build those pyramids. Um, but uh, it, it it's it could go either way. I mean, there's there's really solid arguments that the pyramids were in fact built more recently you know 3000 bc or the traditional dates given 2500 bc whatever bc whatever they are and then there's also compelling arguments that the pyramids were built much much further back in 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 prehistory and again i think both i think both arguments uh make very compelling points so i haven't settled anywhere in terms of a time frame for the for the pyramids well, that's uh, that's 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 certainly interesting, though. It really is the whole the whole damn thing is. And I, I when I think about what you had written in the that just uh, one excerpt, the doc the document that you had sent me months ago when we started planning this this broadcast, I know that there was one part. Now we were talking about this this age before the the impacts or before the big event, before the cataclysm, that we're we're looking at a. Uh, a pre-diluvian world where there is a race of demigods that are very out in the open and they're dominating the earth and they're fighting with each other and uh, most of them have to have been killed from this as well 
So I'd have to think, uh, assume that you believe that maybe there's a little bit of divine providence in the uh, the cataclysm itself, just be just to be able to take out a lot of the the, the rebels from the initial fall. Um, but but from there, not all of them were gone. If some people had have been reporting that they they had sighted. Uh, cited uh, giants in in Afghanistan in in the early parts of the the, the war. So, what do you think of how much was left of that race? How much was left for them to rebuild? There were giants in the land of Canaan during Joshua's conquest, um, and uh, so certainly, certainly there were giants after the cataclysm. Now. How large those giants were can be debated, um, but the the simplest answer as to how that would have occurred is that is that is that some some of them must have survived in some way, shape, or form. And um, uh, now, those who believe that the entirety of the earth and all life on earth besides the eight people in the ark were were destroyed in the flood have a real hard time with that and i understand that i understand that difficulty for them um but but if you're open to the idea that uh, not every square inch of ground was covered by water and that there were parts of the earth uh, where you could have survived it would have been exceedingly difficult though to survive no matter what the circumstance, it would have been very difficult to survive in the aftermath. Uh, there probably would have been places on the earth that would have been easier to survive, that would have been a much more habitable climate. But if you're open to the idea that that not the entire earth was covered in water, then, then, it's, then it's quite easy to imagine a scenario in which, based on geography, uh, some of those giants would have survived. Hmm. Yeah. I I have one more off-topic question about the giants themselves. You had talked about a blood bond before that they may have had when they came down and they they started mating with our women and 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 creating the secondary race. But in in some of your writing, you had talked about that they had a almost like a blood addiction, and there was a, a the, the sacrifice how sacrifice was so important. And my question to you is just based on what you have learned in all of your adventures through ruins in in central and south america and your your extended uh your extended travels elsewhere and your research why is blood so important on a sacrifice level and on a consumption level why is that so important to um to to pleasing these entities or for them to consume themselves well there's a very long-winded answer for that question i don't think we have time for but let me simplify it by saying that i i uh, part of this story the Enochian tale, this the, the the book of the Watchers, is that the giants grew to an enormous size and were consuming. It's so elegantly put in the book of Enoch. Were consuming all of the acquisitions of the land. They were consuming all the acquisitions of the land. In other words, in other words, everything that humans were able to grow and produce. So much of it was was having to be turned over to the giants to consume to eat. So the human beings were having to sustain these giants. And by the way, these giants were the kings. These aren't, you know, fee-fi-fo-fum, stupid giants walking around with clubs, cross-eyed giants like in, uh, you know, the Disney cartoons. These are exceedingly intelligent beings, powerful beings. And these are, uh, and these are the kings. These are the, the, they're ruling over mankind. 
and oppressing mankind, and, and, and indeed so much so that when when human beings could no longer sustain their appetites, the giants began to devour mankind, according to the Book of Enoch. And so I believe that what this looked like in practice was probably some kind of a quota where each village had to bring a human sacrifice, a, a you know living flesh for the giants to consume in order to appease their appetites. And so let's, let's, for the sake of argument, assume that that was a historical thing that happened, that there were these giants, as crazy as it sounds, living on the earth. They were ru ruling over and oppressing mankind, and they were requiring human sacrifice so that they could literally sustain, um, fulfill their appetites, satisfy their appetites, eating these people, eating, and maybe it was children, maybe it was adolescents, and and that the the villages and the and the communities had to produce these individuals to be consumed now wouldn't that then lay the foundation after the cataclysm when so much of what happened in in that during that time before the cataclysm is just sort of a distant memory wouldn't that then make sense that these civilizations remembering this scenario would begin to try and appease the appetites of the gods offering up their children or their virgins to the gods in remembrance of this uh, of this uh, sanguinary appetite of these demigods who were literally eating them so you mean so it would in, in that case would be a uh, a leftover behavior tradition of this trauma this intergenerational right trauma. of a very literal of a very literal sacrifice that was taking place in the antediluvian world during the golden age it, it, again in that and that people were being offered up to these demigod giants to be consumed as food and and then that practice was carried over into the post-flood world um and hmm. and it was it was being acted out it was it was it was it was being remembered but distantly and so and so what was remembered was that the gods had an appetite for blood right and that's why you would offer up the gods the blood of your sacrifices or of your or of your captives in battle and you know and the famously the aztec stretching them out over the sacrificial stone on top of the pyramids and thrusting the the, the flint knife through their heart, the obsidian knife through their heart, and cutting out their heart to offer it up to, 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 to their gods to appease their appetite. Yes, this would have been in remembrance of an actual practical uh, practice that was taking place in the world before the cataclysm. That's what I think. That's what I, I think. That's what the origins were, uh, and are of human sacrifice. So it's so incredibly uh, interesting. I I wish we can. Uh, I can't wait for the next the next couple of next couple of talks we we have, Timothy, because I want to keep expanding on this. And for anybody that wants to read into more of the work that you've compiled on this, there is special sections inside of Birthright that they can read. Yes. Okay. So everybody. Uh, yes. Now let me let me preface that by saying I I don't directly address the younger Dry's impact hypothesis. I had not. I had. I was only. I, I had only done a cursory investigation. I didn't feel like I, I understood it well enough to write about in the book, but I do have it in a footnote, and it does fit into the timeline of what I talk about. But I do exhaustively talk about the fall of the Watchers and everything that happened in the antediluvian world, and, and you can certainly read about that 
my book Birthright, which is available on Amazon. I have it right up on the screen right now. Birthright, the coming post-human apocalypse and the usurpation of Adam's dominion on planet Earth. Oh, I, I, you had to have seen the um, these like 3D images and and videos about how uh, baby factories pretty much right out of the matrix right out of brave new world baby factories could be growing human babies in pods at 30,000 children a year so whenever we whenever we talk about the almost foregone conclusion about whether or not we are going to have to go into this we are going to be merged into this singularity and have to fight our way out in one say one way or another Boy, they have really upped the game, Tim. I predict. I predict that very scenario in this book. I predicted it, and um, you know, and because the 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 globalists realize, you know, the globalists, whoever these people are, they realize that, and maybe they've engineered it to be this way. Probably so, to 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 degree. Because I think in I think this is happening primarily because of genetic degeneration, which we've discussed, I think, on your show. But they they understand that by the year 2045, the the male sperm count across the earth is going to zero. 2045, zero. That means no more babies. No more babies. Not the old-fashioned way. <laughs> uh, and so right on time, we're getting these, these what, what really amount to schematics for artificial wombs mass art just like you said just like the matrix mass artificial wombs i predicted that in my book that that would be coming in in the near future among many other things so yeah we are we are sliding into this dystopian technocracy very very quickly and and it and it all relates by the way it all it all correlates with the golden age because what we're going to see is we're going to see a resurgence of the empire of the gods and another a new golden age on planet earth in which the gods walk openly among men in a post-human paradigm on planet earth i can see that 100 percent with the way that they already present themselves and they're getting more and more brazen with what they believe that they can do, um, had, to, had to take more and more, uh, I, I would say, divine responsibility into their hands for their stewardship of the earth, uh, how they believe they can control everything from the weather to the, the seas, um, how they can control the human genome, how it can be uh, recreated and made better. I mean, this is, this is very, it, it's, it's very brazen. And it's very naked. Maybe they're, right maybe they're trying to engineer it a form of humanity that can that can survive the next cataclysm because some people again referencing hancock's work some people like graham hancock believe that we're due to pass through that that asteroid um that asteroid field again now basically or in the or in the very near future uh, tom horn also uh, hypothesizes that the Earth is going to be struck by a comet called Apophis between 2025 and 2029. There's all kinds of other other theories out there that there's a sun flare event that happens every 12,000. There's a host of different uh, different ideas regarding a cyclic cataclysm that you know that uh, that we're due for whatever happened 12,000 years ago to happen again. And uh, and that 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 could play into why, for example, the 
the again the quote-unquote elites or globalists have been building underground bases all over the world mm. and maybe why they're in such a rush to engineer a new form of humanity maybe in anticipation of a cataclysm who knows but uh um i mean there's so many different uh options i uh when, when i think about a new reset I, I think about so uh, I think they don't even need an asteroid obviously they haven't played the alien card just yet you have to imagine that's coming somewhere but between so, social upheaval economic collapse cyber pandemic that they have uh, promised us climate lockdowns biological virus lockdowns all the things that they have already shown us they have in their toolbox there's so many ways that they can reset the planet without needing an asteroid or a comet but only this time i think that the ark would be the sand tra it would be the trap the metaverse would be the ark this time if they're the ones telling us quick get on and if we all get on and live in this digital world because the real one has been burnt out and we have been made uh in, in it's been made inaccessible to us then uh it's it, the digital world is i believe the ghost trap for us all in this next go around it's the end of humanity and uh we we are you know this is a different conversation, but but uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who probably most people are familiar with, with now, the, the 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 prophet of transhumanism, the World Economic Forum's prophet of transhumanism, is predicting that in one to two hundred years from now, the human species is gone. We will be replaced by a post-human species. Guess what? Before Yuval Harari was saying that, or at least before I was aware of him saying that, I literally said that that would be the case in my book, and uh, and that that lines up with um, when I believe that uh, the the end of the age will occur. And it's not when I believe that the end of the age will occur. It's it's when the age, end of the age will occur, according to the procession of the equinox and the zodiac, which we've talked about. Oh, yes, we have. And we're going to have to do it again because this stuff is becoming more and more prescient. Uh, Timothy Alberino, timothyalberino.com. Buy his books. Follow him on YouTube, on Twitter. Follow it all. And before you know it, he'll be back here on Quite Frankly. Thank you so much for everything, Tim. This has been a wonderful evening. Thank you. By the way, this ring I have is not a Masonic ring. As you can see, it's a lion for all the people, I'm sure, that uh, constantly uh, <laughs> comment about it. But I just wanted to... You know, I, saw I was rubbing my my ring, and I already know the Masonic conspiracies that are going to oh well, it's rise a, from that's, that. That's not for for this audience. The Masonic conspiracy is is not the, the the problem, Tim. The problem is that you have a big cat on your finger, so that is going to. Be <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah, so that's gonna that's gonna further the other uh, conspiracy theory, the feline theory. <laughs> that's it. Well, you, you have yourself a good night over there. By the way, you know what the 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 symbol for for uh the age of leo 10,000 years ago was was a lion so maybe this is all uh not so coincidental perhaps it isn't i don't i don't i don't put chalk anything up to coincidence very much anymore and uh and i, I have to imagine that that's going to happen less and less but send my best to your family and thanks again for your time tonight my friend my pleasure thank you all right take care there is timothy alberino going and doing his thing and uh, I will be right back. We're going to take a really quick break. It's 834, a really quick break, and, um, and I'm going to play a, uh, a, a seldom heard Set the Charge song with yours truly on the drums right after because I have to run down to the facilities and uh, to Wee Wee. 
I have to do wee wee. So I'll be right back. And then we're going to take your calls if we have time for them and your super chats. I see a few of them coming in. In the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, hit the like button. I know that there's not much left of the show, but hit the like button, hit the rumble plus button, like, 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 because it'll help people watching it in the afterwards, in the, the, the on-demand time of things. So thank you so much for everything. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Welcome to Intermission. We'll, we'll be right back. Yeah, Intermission. Quite frankly. 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 Quite so everybody watch, quite frankly, with Frank. Quite frankly. How dare you.
Let's get into some super chats. All right, from quite frankly, superchat.com, and then we'll go over to the Rumble Rants and Rockfin and Gold Pills on Foxhole. Ventus Bruma, thank you. Thank you, Ventus, for a wonderful tip. No message, but I know exactly what they're saying. Frank, thank you. No, thank you. Smokey Oki says, great show again tonight. Frank, Timothy is always a great guest and very informative yet entertaining. 
for our household. Strong start to the new year. Can't wait for what's in store for us all coming in the coming new age. Coming of the new age. Yeah. What is in store for us? That's a real good question. And I love when Tim comes on because uh, then I get to slip into a world of giants and incredible battles between heaven and hell played out on earth and the physical I mean there's just so much so many places we've been to we have any we did cryptids I think we did cryptids back in in um in October that was the last time he was on but I I greatly enjoy these conversations greatly enjoy them Professor Bunsy Boy Bunsy Boy says great show Frank Timothy Alberino is real tight tight like a tiger like a lion Katie Sky D says don't ban me bro for what what's the matter don't ban you Stostube thank you Stostube good to see you out there thank you for the tip Katie says Christmas again score because I still have one more Christmas nut left in me left in me to give not the other way around what the hell's going on Katie, you're, I'm not going to ban you. I just don't... <laughs> I, I'm confused. <laughs> uh, Lila. Lila? Like our cat? Frank, this is your cat. What the hell is she... Where, first of all, where'd she get the money from? Lauren? Lauren better check to see where her pocketbook is. Lila says, Frank, this is your cat. I took a shit in the water heater. I wanted... To, she doesn't have access to the water heater. This is not real. This can't be real. I wanted to tell you since you called me out last week, but I only just learned to type. Who's the fucking menace now? Oh, boy. No, no, that's definitely not Lila. She doesn't even know where the water heater is. She's not allowed down there. Terrence the Possum, the Opossum. Terrence. Yes, hi, this is the Opossum that hangs out near your trash. My name is Terrence, but my best mates call me Terry. Say hi next time instead of screaming and trying to hit me with a broom now that we're on the first name basis, yeah? Love, Terry. Hmm. Terry. No. Bad. That's a bad name. Sounds like terror. Winston. See, Lauren naming the 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 uh, the little visitor Winston. That is that's a little bit more. I don't know. That's a little bit more disarming. I feel like the the possum would be wearing a cowboy hat. It would be you know just trying to be a nice neighbor. Your name's Winston. You have to wear a cowboy hat, I think. Terrence, that's just like a snooty... I don't know, British man. Snooty British man who just doesn't... doesn't Really doesn't care about you. He just wants to use you. For some reason. In this case, my trash. Farron Beast says, I also hate possums. Oh, wait, you already said that last night. Well, we're, I'm trying not to hate. Trying to move past that. It's a new year, new me. Yamez says, Frank, I turned 31 today. I want nothing else than to hear you say Lake Titicacas. Please no. Please. What, what the hell just happened? 
Oh, please know you're doing a good job and keep being courageous, brother. Well, Yamez, happy birthday to you. 31 is a great, great age. There's still something very late 20s about 31. 32 is like the last of your 20s. I say. Lake Titicacas, though. There you go. I said it twice for you because it's your birthday. Thank you. Jameson says, Frank, recently found you. Glad I did. You're such much needed in this ever-devolving nightmare for what caused the disaster and still affects us today. Check out Troy uh, McLaughlin. His book, Saturn Death Cult. Get him on the show. You will not be disappointed. Sounds great. Do me a favor. Email me so I don't forget. Ventus Bruma says you should see if you can get Suspicious Observer on to talk about Micronova Theory. Could be an awesome show. I think I subscribe to Suspicious Observer on YouTube. I'm pretty sure I do. Okay, got some great super chats there. Uh, over to the Rumble. Rumble, everybody's hanging out, doing their thing. Great crowds all over the place. Thank you for all of the the attention you've given me tonight. And now on to, quite frankly, .tv. Let's see here. Sean Joe Cookie, thank you. Ranger L says, Dems are pushing out Biden. Jill's cancer will be the excuse to resign. If he refuses, Hunter will be indicted. Well, I heard that Jill's cancer was uh, a, a very small little speck of something, and they got it within acceptable margins, and that everything is... It's uh, not only most common, but the easily cured. It's like a basal cell carcinoma, skin cancer. I don't know if that's going to be the reason why that Joe is going to resign. And I honestly don't think that this is uh, a, a the way that they're going to try to get J uh, Joe Biden to resign and get the hell out of there. I don't think so. I, I really do believe that they're they're going to try to cover this up and, and throw a wet blanket on it the best that they can. If they wanted to do that, there's so many there's so many outstanding things. You can pick like one thing. You don't even if you don't even have to man, uh, to acknowledge everything that's inside of Hunter's laptop. You don't even have to man, uh, acknowledge everything that's in there. Just pick a couple of things there. All of a sudden, start treating it throughout your media with a certain level of seriousness, and then you uh, behind the scenes you you orchestrate. Joe Biden's graceful stepping down and 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 moving away. I mean, there's so many ways to do it. I don't know why you would bring this in, especially since it so thoroughly neutralizes all of the incredible, incredible federal overreach, invasionary tactics that have been that that were employed last August when they went to Mar-a-Lago and completely turned uh, Donald Trump's private residence upside down. A, an actual president. It just neutralizes to so many other things. I, I don't know. I actually think it might be a real happening. Now, obviously, it's going to be used. It's an, it's an opportunist. They're going to use it however many ways. It's going to be steered. But if you really want to get this guy out, if it's time to usher him out, if you're, you know, just trying to exit some of the old players stage left and bring some new ones in, you don't need this. You don't need this. Could have picked from anything. 
Jay Jewel, thank you. Sean Joe, thank you. Stostube sent an entire sleeve of cookies. Thank you so much. Chai Possum says, welcome back, Timothy. Meow. Sounded very sultry. Robert Sarns, are you familiar with Suspicious Observer? Ben explains all this as a normal 12K year cycle of our sun. So there's another uh, Suspicious Observer plug. River Pike sends a sleeve of their own cookies. Curious Patriot sends a sleeve of their own cookies. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the um, the native foxhole pill.net um, currency system. So thank you, Stostube. Shouting out Curious Patriot. Music Man, thank you. Smokey Oki. There he is over there. Great show again, Frank. Thank you. And Curious Patriots is one of my favorite Set the Charge tunes yet, brother. I love that one, Suffocate the Dream. I love that one. And for those of you who have been monthly subscribers and we do the Sunday afternoons together in those unlisted streams, I think it was last winter that I was down in the basement and we were I was doing a stream from my my setup down there and I actually got to show you guys the the way that that song evolved from the early demos how the 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 vocal lines evolved how everything evolved and then we got the then we got the uh, the finished product and I showed you guys the finished product before anybody else I love that song I really do simplicity has been best these days compared to where we came from but we are oh bad that by the way the uh, the band meeting the other night went great we have two originals that we're going to start picking apart and um and one one cover i don't know if they're going to do my cover so i'll let you know what i told them i wanted to do i want to cover with these guys cuz i think that everyone in the band would do so well in making this song our own and also and also um honoring the original sound and everything i think we would do so well with def leopard love bites i think that we would do so well with it and i hope they take take up my uh, request in fact i'm going to just start demanding it what the hell do i get what do i get out of this relationship i want to play def leopard love bites i want to record it with these guys i think it would be awesome go 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 next time you're in the car alone blast love bites Roll down the windows a little bit. Let some of that icy winter air come in. And tell me it's not still an awesome song with great harmonies, that great buildup. It's great. I love that. All right. Uh, Captain Flint, thank you. Paulie, thank you. Uh, por porpoiseful Cynthia and Delona. Okay, that's it for all of the... Love bites. There, I, there, that's me talking. That's it for all the gold pills. I'm releasing the scratching right now. And it is 8.53. I think that's it for tonight. I can't start taking calls with seven minutes left. Can't do it. But you guys and gals have been wonderful. We have another great one tomorrow with Leo Zagami. Another great one with Leo Zagami. So don't miss that because we are going to be a little bit in more modern times with our conversation. We're talking about the occult operations of the occult Illuminati operations within Hollywood and also with all of the very tumultuous events happening in the Vatican. I want to talk about that too. A couple of well-placed Vatican questions for Leo and then uh, away. 
into the weekend we go. And next week will be great. We'll have a lot more wiggle room next week in the beginning, Monday and Tuesday, to do clear our plate of a lot of things, do some current events, take some calls. But for now, thank you for tonight, ladies and gents. I will talk to you tomorrow. Is that all I had over here? Yes. Perfect. All right. Nighty night. If you're a new viewer, welcome. Monday through Friday, 7 o'clock, right here. You can watch on DLive, on Theta, on Foxhole, which is on QuiteFrankly.tv. You should definitely go there more often. That is a fallback if anything else goes wrong. As long as there's internet, we will be live on QuiteFrankly.tv. Twitch, Rumble, YouTube, Rockfin. You guys have been great. We will see you soon. And good night. Thanks again to Timothy Alberino. I'll catch you on the flip side. Quite frankly, is filmed before a live studio audience, and now our super chatters, starting with Ventus Bruma, Yamez, Jameson, Ventus Bruma, Smokey Yoki, Professor Bunzy Boy, KT Sky D, Stostube, KT Sky D again, Lila, Terrence the Opossum. You guys, oh boy, you guys. Until tomorrow, I'll be thinking about you. Nighty night. Okay, Chief, take him away. I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife. <laughs>